Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Great to see you guys this morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. In the year 2011, a Christian radio broadcaster at the time named Harold Camping announced with confidence that the world would end promptly on October 21st of that year. That was the day, at least according to him, that every saved soul would be raptured from this earth and God would lay waste to the rest. And when he made that announcement about the world ending, a very interesting thing happened in response. No one listened to him. (laughs) Like not even a little bit. And that's at least partly because he wasn't exactly a voice of authority on the subject by this time. You see, earlier that same year, he had also stated with complete confidence that the world would end on May 21st of that year. He had also predicted a number of other dates for it to occur, dating all the way back to September 6, 1994. Harold Camping was nothing if not persistent in his efforts. But Harold Camping, I think, is also reflective of a certain wing of Christianity out there that is particularly fascinated by the idea of the end of the world, what some Christians will call the end times. Now, truth be told, it's not a bad thing at all to think and study about the day that Jesus comes back. Throughout history, followers of Jesus have often talked about and longed for that day. I personally think, if anything, a lot of Christians today could stand to think and study more about that sort of thing. But for some Christians out there, it's, it's not just a longing for that day, it's, it's almost an obsession with it. And, and particularly an obsession with determining exactly when and how it will happen, how to see it coming for us, in other words. These people will often keep a close eye on world events and start connecting what they see as dotted lines between those events happening in our world and the events that they think the Bible speaks of as happening and indicating the end of the world. If you spend much time around these people at all, they generally will not hesitate to make this obsession of theirs known. Sometimes they even have charts and graphs and calendars that they will be glad to break out and show you about all of it, or at least really bad Christian books about the subject. Have you guys at least heard of people like this? Okay, so here's the thing. A lot of the things that those people believe come from the passage that we're going to cover this morning. Matthew chapter 24 is one of a handful of passages in the Bible that at least seem to speak at length about the end of the world. So if this is your first time with us on a Sunday, hi. (laughs) So glad that you're here this morning. Uh, You you have picked a somewhat interesting morning to join us. Uh, As Marcus said earlier, there is coffee out in the lobby. You you may need another cup uh, before we're done. But just for you to know, this is not like a normal thing that we sit around and talk about 
here on Sundays. We talk about it occasionally. We don't talk about it every week. But we have been teaching straight through the book of Matthew for the better part of the past three years as a church family, just taking it passage by passage, line by line. And this is the passage that we're on. So we're going to go for it this morning. But just to set your expectations correctly, uh, I am not planning on breaking out any diagrams or charts or end times calendars during our time together this morning. Maybe that's disappointing to some of you here. Sorry, I'm not sorry about that. Um, But we're going to approach things a little bit differently this morning. And part of that is because I personally wonder if people who approach this topic in that sort of way haven't actually missed the overall point of this passage a little bit. In fact, I personally wonder if people that read it that way haven't read this passage precisely the opposite of the way Jesus intended his words to be heard. And I wanna try to show you that as we go along this morning. But to put it slightly more positively too, I wonder if this passage before us this morning isn't actually a bit more practically helpful and relevant to our lives today than it often gets credit for being, at least according to some Christians. And before we're done today, I want to try to show you why I think that as well. So we're going to go for it this morning. Are you awake? Are you alert? I know it's rainy outside. We've got everything working against us and we've got 35 verses to cover, but I believe in us. I think we can do this. So, are you ready for Matthew 24? Love it. We got one woo. That's all I could hope for, you know? One woo. All right, Matthew 24, pick it up with me in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to its buildings, that is, the temple's buildings. Do you see all of these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So Jesus and his disciples are now leaving the temple at this point in the story where Jesus has been doing some combination of teaching and also confrontation with the religious leaders there. But as they leave the temple, Jesus and his disciples, the disciples start pointing out to Jesus how beautiful the temple itself is. And it was indeed beautiful. It was absolutely massive in scope. It was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. It was 31 stories tall, we think, which may not sound like much by today's standards, but back then it was absolutely unheard of. It was also constructed with some of the most magnificent, expensive materials on offer, gold, marble, expensive stone, all of those sorts of things. So the disciples, as they walk out of the temple, they are marveling about the temple structure to Jesus. They're pointing out how beautiful and magnificent it all is. Jesus, however, does not seem to be in the mood for fanboying at the temple. That's not, that's not the mode he's in currently. He responds by telling them that, quote, one stone of the temple will not be left on another. They will all be thrown down. So what Jesus is alluding to there in all likelihood is the destruction of the temple that would happen in the year AD 70. So right about 40 years after Jesus says this. Roman armies, we know from history, under the general Titus, would lay siege to the city of Jerusalem as a whole. They would eventually take over the temple structure, and then they would level the entire temple to the ground eventually. Jesus here is predicting prophetically that that will happen in the future, which prompts a question from his disciples. Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so sort of an overlook where you could peer back towards the temple, 
The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? By this, they mean the destruction of the temple that he just alluded to. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so a lot of how you understand the rest of this passage hinges on how you understand the question that was just asked by the disciples and Jesus' response to it. Here's how I would summarize what is happening. In the disciples' mind, they just asked one question about one event. Their question was, when will the temple be destroyed and Jesus return? That's what they asked. In the average Jewish person's mind at the time, those two things were going to happen at or around the same time. If the temple was destroyed, that must have meant that Jesus had come back or was coming back and he was making all things new. Those things were going to happen right around the same time. Jewish people back then referred to it as the end of the age. So they are asking Jesus when all of that is going to happen and how they will know that it's happening. That's their question. But here's the tricky part. Jesus answers them as if they have just asked two separate questions. He answers it this way. Question one is when will the temple be destroyed? Question two is when will Jesus return? The disciples think they asked one question. Jesus answers it as if it is two separate events. And a lot of the confusion around this passage, I would argue, is due to the fact that it is not 100% clear when Jesus is talking about what, when he is answering which one of those questions. When is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70? When is Jesus talking about the day that he returns? And as you might expect, pretty much no Christians can agree on when he's talking about what. We're really good at that as Christians, not agreeing on things, right? No Christians can agree, nor scholars can really agree on when he is answering what question. So some Christians would say that Jesus is pretty much only talking about the destruction of the temple. Other Christians would say he's pretty much only talking about his return. Most Christians would actually say he's talking about some combination of both, but we're not exactly sure when he's talking about what. Is this complicated enough for you already? Love it. So what we have to do this morning is we have to try to dissect when Jesus is talking about what so we don't get the wrong idea about what he's saying. We have our work cut out for us. And just for clarity, uh, I do not think I am going to solve for us this morning what hundreds of years of Christian scholars have not been able to solve. So sorry to disappoint you in that way. I don't think that highly of myself. I do sometimes think highly of myself. I grant you that, but I don't think that highly of myself. So I don't think we're gonna solve it all this morning. But here's the plan. I am going to give you my best crack at it. I'm going to tell you what I think makes the most sense of this passage, tell you that there's freedom for us to disagree as followers of Jesus about some of the particulars, and then I'm going to circle back at the end to some stuff that I think we can all agree on application-wise, regardless of how we see the particulars of this passage. Does that sound good? You still with me? Again, coffee's in the lobby. You can go get some more if you need it. Okay, with that said, let's take a look at Jesus' response to the disciples, starting in verse 4. Jesus answered them, watch out that no one deceives you. Okay, that sentence right there, I would argue, is the pastoral intent of everything that Jesus says in the entire passage. 
That's the purpose behind what he's saying. He does not want his disciples to be deceived. I say that that's his point in part because he's going to repeat that idea about five more times before we're done with this passage. Seems like a point of emphasis for Jesus. He does not want his disciples to be deceived. A lot of stuff is about to go down in the world that they occupy, and Jesus does not want them to be in the dark about it, surprised by it, or deceived by it. So what he says next and everything he says on the rest of the passage is trying to give them some specifics on what he doesn't want them to be deceived by. Verse five, for many will come in my name, Jesus says, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive, there's that word again, will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus just mentioned quite a few big, scary-sounding things, right? So wars, famines, earthquakes, false messiahs. And this is one of the places that people will often point to in the Bible in order to insist that they know Jesus is going to return any day, like in our lifetime. They will, they will look at the news and they'll see things like the war in Ukraine right now. And they'll go, see, the Bible said there would be wars and rumors of wars. That means Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. Jesus said that this was happened and now it's happening. Or they'll, they'll see things like the earthquakes in Turkey that happened earlier this year. And they'll, they'll say, see, the Bible said there was going to be earthquakes right before Jesus came back. And those things are happening. So now we know that Jesus is coming back any day now. Everybody better keep your eyes peeled. Those people think that say that, they think they are simply applying this passage of scripture. But I want you to think critically about that perspective with me for just a second. Because followers of Jesus since the beginning of the Christian movement have been witnessing wars, famines, earthquakes, even false prophets and false messiahs. And since the beginning, all of those Christians, at least some of them, have been convinced that those things meant the end of the world was about to occur. And at least so far, none of them have been correct in thinking that. Now, the nature of going around saying that all the time is that eventually some of them are going to be right, <laughs> right? So that's the irony. But still, I, I think when you think about it that way, it should at least give us some pause about understanding these passages in that way, right? But I also think there's an even clearer reason that we shouldn't read these verses in that way. And it actually has to do with the very language that Jesus uses in the passage. So look back with me in your Bibles at verses five through eight. According to Jesus in those verses, do all of these big, scary sounding things happening mean that the end is imminent? or that the end is still to come? My Bible says still to come. Do all of these things happening mean that we should be alarmed or that we shouldn't be alarmed? My Bible says that we shouldn't. And even that last part Jesus said about these being the beginning of birth pains, maybe you read that and you go, see, labor pains means you're about to have a baby. There it is, all of this stuff means that Jesus is coming back any moment. But those of you that have recently had a baby, which I think is about half of our church right now, <laughs> those of you that have recently had a baby, I want you to think about it for a second. Is the way that it worked 
that the moment you started having your first labor pain, you immediately delivered a baby? Or was your first labor pain the beginning of a very long, arduous process that eventually resulted in having a baby? Generally speaking, it's the second one, right? That's the way it works. So here's what I'm getting at, and this is absolutely vital to how I think we should understand what Jesus is saying in this part of the passage. I think Jesus is telling his disciples not that all of the things he just mentioned are signs of the end of the world, but that they aren't. I think he's trying to prepare them for some things that will happen, but that do not mean he has come back. So that when deceptive people show up in those moments and go, look, it's me, it's the Messiah, I've come back, I've returned, then the disciples know in those moments not to believe them, not to be deceived by those people. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me so far? I know that might be different than how you've heard it some places before. I think that is what Jesus is doing here. I think that makes the most sense of what Jesus says. Okay, continuing in verse 9. Then Jesus says, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear, and what's that next word again? Deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says not only will bad things happen in the world in general at large, they will also happen to you specifically as followers of Jesus. Now, Obviously, all of the stuff Jesus said in that section of the passage has also been happening on repeat ever since the day Jesus said it. For the past 2,000 years, followers of Jesus around the world have been hated and persecuted and killed. I get that it doesn't happen as much in our country, but it happens around the world at all times. For the past 2,000 years, people have turned away from their faith and hated each other. For the past 2,000 years, some people's love for Jesus has grown cold over time. But here again... I think Jesus is speaking specifically to the disciples standing in front of him when he said it. He's preparing them specifically for the grim reality that they specifically will be hated, persecuted, and handed over to be killed. That they will witness people's love for Jesus grow cold and people hate each other. That they will witness the increase in wickedness in their day. He's warning them that all of that is coming so that it doesn't catch them off guard when it happens. Because, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, that verse right there, verse 14, could mean that Jesus is waiting to come back until every nation on earth has heard the gospel. In fact, some missions organizations today will use this very idea as a tagline. They'll say that they want to get the gospel to every nation on planet earth because Jesus said that once that happens, he will come back and we want to usher that in. And that could be what Jesus means here. And, and honestly, just personally, I'm hesitant to argue with anything that gets the gospel out to more people that need it faster, right? So if that's the way you read this passage, honestly, I would say all power to you. But in context, this could also very plausibly mean that Jesus is not going to come back until at least the entire ancient world had heard the gospel. 
In other words, what his disciples at the time would have thought of as the whole world. So essentially the Roman Empire and then some. But honestly, either way you read it, the point is that Jesus is waiting until more and more people hear about him before he comes back. And that his disciples, whether that's then or today or both, his disciples should not assume that just because they are being hated and persecuted and handed over to die, that that means Jesus has already come back and they've been forgotten about. That's what he's trying to say. Okay, does that all make sense so far? Still with me, mostly? Good, because this next part is a real doozy. Verse 15. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Okay, first and most important question about this. If a death metal band somewhere has not already claimed the album title, The Abomination That Causes Desolation, what on earth could they be waiting for, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I can see the album artwork in my head. It would be awesome. But second most, I'm sorry, that was a dad joke. Second most important question, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus actually gives us a nudge in the right direction in the passage itself. He points us to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, we won't turn there for time's sake, also partly because parts of Daniel read like a bad acid trip, if you've never read it before. Like, they're intense. Like, it is very vivid. But in chapter 11, if you would go back and read it on your own time, there is a mention of an abomination that causes desolation. It referred to a time when a Greek ruler named Antiochus offered a pig as a sacrifice on the temple altar. Pigs, according to Old Testament law, were unclean animals, so that made them an abomination, especially to offer them on the temple altar in Jerusalem. Now, all of that seems incredibly specific and irrelevant until you realize that years and years later, around the year AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, when Roman armies took over the temple, they too offered pigs as sacrifices at the temple altar, at the holy place. In other words, history repeated itself generations and generations later. So in all likelihood, that is precisely what Jesus is referencing here when they offer those sacrifices on the temple altar. I hate to disappoint you. The abomination that causes desolation is not Trump. It's not Biden. It's not Kamala. It's none of those things, despite what you may have heard. It's something that in all likelihood already happened in Jerusalem around the year AD 70. But the reason Jesus brings that up is to give his disciples practical instructions on what to do when that happens. Take a look with me in verse 16. Then, when you see that happen in Jerusalem, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or the Sabbath because it would be much more difficult to respond in this way. Verse 21, for then or at that time... There will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So, Jesus says, when you see all of that happen at the temple, 
when you see the Roman armies offer the pig sacrifices at the temple, Jesus says, here's what I want you as my people to do. I want you to run. I want you to get as far away as you can, as fast as you can. Don't go back to your house to get anything. Don't pick up something that you left behind. Don't look back. Just run for the hills, literally. Now, this part of the passage, I think, almost has to be referring to the destruction of the temple and not to Jesus' future return. I say that for a few reasons. First, it makes perfect historical sense for that to be what Jesus is talking about. We know from history outside of the Bible that almost immediately after the Roman armies sacrificed those pigs at the temple altar, their attack on the city of Jerusalem got far more intense all of a sudden. They began killing what would end up being over a million people in the city, most of whom were Jewish, many of whom were followers of Jesus. They carried off another several hundred thousand into slavery. Things got really, really bad in Jerusalem after that happened. So Jesus here is predicting that all of that is going to happen, and he's telling his disciples what to do when that happens so that they can survive it all. Second, reading this part of the passage as being about the destruction of the temple makes way more practical sense than it referring to the future return of Jesus. Because think about it for just a second. If Jesus is talking about his return in the future, if he's talking about when he comes back, why on earth would he be telling his disciples to run from it? Wouldn't they want to run towards it if he's talking about his return? But then third, let's just assume for a second that Jesus is talking about his future return. He's telling followers of Jesus everywhere across all of time when they see the abomination that causes desolation, whatever that is, they should run from it. Practically speaking, how should we obey that instruction from Jesus today? Are, are we like watching a live stream of the temple in Jerusalem at all times to know when that happens? There's one major problem with that. This temple is no longer there on account of it was destroyed. And, and honestly, even if it was still there and we could watch a live stream of it, where exactly do we run when it happens? Like, do all of us travel to Jerusalem so that we can run for the hills there, just like Jesus said? Or do we like contextualize it? And we run for the mountains here. We're in Knoxville. There's mountains in every direction. Which way do we run? Like north, south, east, west? Like where, we, we don't have near enough practical instructions or detail to know how to obey this command from Jesus if it was written to us today. So it makes far more sense to me to think that Jesus is specifically talking to his immediate audience living in first century Jerusalem, who will need to escape the city of Jerusalem before Roman armies destroy most everything around them and everyone around them. That, to me, is the best way of understanding what Jesus says. Verse 23, at that time... If anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, look, he's returned, here he is, do not believe it, which, just think about that for a second, would be a somewhat odd thing for Jesus to say if he was, in fact, talking about his return, right? Because that would mean that whoever says, look, here's the Messiah, would, in effect, be correct. But Jesus says, don't believe him. Verse 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Again, weird thing for him to say if those people were in effect telling the truth. 
Verse 27, I want you to notice this next part. This is his point here, I think. As lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Anyone who, ever, who has ever been hunting knows that that's how that works, right? Here's what Jesus is saying in this part of the passage. When he does in fact return, we will know. We'll know. We won't be wondering and speculating about whether or not it happened or is happening. We won't be checking the conspiracy theory blog post online, Reddit boards to see if it's happening. There will be no ambiguity about it when he comes back. We will, as his people, all know. So Jesus says, don't believe people that come to you and say, Jesus has come back. It's already happened. He's over there. He's out in the wilderness. Don't believe those people. You do not need anyone to tell you that it has happened. When it does, you will know. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Now, this next part, believe it or not, is where it admittedly gets a little bit dicey, interpretively speaking. So we'll work through it together. Take a look with me at verses 29 through 31. Some of you are like, this is when it gets dicey? I thought we were already in the dicey part. This is where it gets dicey in terms of determining what Jesus is saying. Verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So a lot of us probably read this part of the passage and we assume that it has to be talking about Jesus' future return. After all, it does say, literally, that people will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And that would certainly be the plainest reading of these verses, that Jesus is now talking about the day that he returns to earth. But at the same time, I don't know that these verses are necessarily about that. They could be, they're not necessarily. Best I can see it, you have two options on how to understand verses 29 through 31. Both options have some advantages and disadvantages. I'll try to unpack each option for you briefly, which just means, as a fair warning, the next couple minutes are gonna feel a little bit like a seminary-level Bible interpretation course. Uh, 10 of you are gonna love that. The other couple hundred of you may want to catch up on your email during this time. Either way, here are your options for verses 29 through 31. Option A is that Jesus has indeed now shifted topics and is now talking about his return. That's option A. As I said, that would certainly be the plainest reading of these verses, but reading it that way also creates a problem, namely a problem with the timing that Jesus seems to be laying out in the passage. Because in just a few verses, we'll look at it here in just a second, Jesus is going to say that all of this is going to happen, quote, before this generation passes away. Every other time that Jesus uses the term this generation, he's talking about the generation of people standing in front of him when he says it. So a generation in Hebrew thought was a period of time of about 40 years or so. So if Jesus here is talking about his return in these verses, that means that either Jesus was mistaken about when he thought he would return, or 
that he did return and none of us were alive yet and we missed it, which would be a bummer to say the least for us, right? But that is the plainest reading. Although while it is the plainest reading, it also makes some of what Jesus says next confusing at best and inaccurate at worst. So that leads us to option B, which is that Jesus is still talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 which would mean that the bulk of what he says in verses 29 through 31 is meant figuratively and not literally. He doesn't mean that the sun will literally go dark. He means it will feel like that to the people experiencing the destruction of the temple and the attack of the Roman armies. He doesn't literally mean that he will ride on the clouds like a cowboy. He means he will be revealed to be the Messiah in some sort of obvious, transcendent sort of way. Now, reading the Bible figuratively like that does make some people uncomfortable because a lot of the Bible should not be read figuratively. But there is precedent for Jesus occasionally using figurative language. One of his favorite forms of communication were parables, which were figurative language. He also used it a number of other times. And there is precedent for this specific type of language, the specific language Jesus uses in these verses being used figuratively in other parts of the Bible, namely the prophetic books. Now, none of that means that Jesus is being figuratively here, necessarily. He's speaking figuratively here, but it does at least mean that it's possible. It's not out of the question, in other words. But to read it that way would be obviously departing from the plainest reading of the verses. And if all of that was not enough for you to consider this morning, there's also a surprise option C which combines option A and B. There is a possibility that Jesus is actually talking about both events here. That he's talking about his return in the future and also the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There's something that scholars call prophetic telescoping, which feel free to just drop that casually in your lunch conversation today. Prophetic telescoping which is where people in the Bible, specifically prophets in the Bible, will often talk about multiple future events using identical language. It's also sometimes called double fulfillment. Some of you may say to all of that, uh, well, which option do you think it is, Kent? Do you think it's A, B, or C? My answer is that it depends on the day. Uh, I think all of those have some significant strengths to them and some significant weaknesses, and I think some parts of the Bible are difficult to understand. And that's all I would like to say on that. Anyway, have fun with all that. Godspeed to you all as you study this passage. (laughs) The good news is that we have now arrived at the final verses of our passage. Those of you catching up on email can come back and join us now. Welcome back. I think relevance is coming in the near future. Everyone look with me at verse 32. Jesus says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Y'all remember fig trees back from chapter 21 of Matthew? Those were simpler times, weren't they? As soon as its twigs get tender, the fig tree and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, which things exactly, Jesus? We're not exactly sure, but some collection of all of the things that he has just mentioned. You know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, here's the passage, here's the verse that I mentioned earlier, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, so regardless of the uncertainties about this passage, of which there are several, here I think is the point. 
We've been talking a lot this morning about the trees. Let's zoom out for a second and look at the forest. Does that sound good to you guys? (laughs) Sounds good to me. What did I say at the very beginning was the pastoral intent of this passage from Jesus? That the disciples would not be what? Deceived. That's Jesus' point, that they wouldn't be deceived. The disciples are going to witness a lot of things change in their lifetime. A lot of upheaval, a lot of violence, a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache, a lot of tragedy. They are going to witness it from a distance with wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. And they are going to witness it from up close as they and people they love are persecuted, tortured, and killed. They're going to witness a lot of upheaval and change in their lifetime. And knowing that they are going to experience all of that, Jesus wants to make sure that they are not confused or deceived about any of it. On the one hand, he does not want his disciples to look around at all of that happening around them and wonder if maybe Jesus has already come back and they missed it somehow, that he has just left them on their own to fend for themselves, that he actually isn't coming back to make all things new at all in the future. Jesus is trying to help his disciples prepare in advance for all of this to happen and help them know how to think and how to act when it does happen. So with that intention, he says to them here in verse 35, the very end of our passage, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth was a well-known Jewish expression, meaning basically everything that there is, kind of like we would say something like from beginning to end. Jesus is telling his disciples that seemingly everything around them, the very world as they know it, may cease to exist before their eyes. Not the end of the world, but the end of a world. The world that they knew may be going away. A lot of the things that they know and love about the world around them may be vanishing. But he wants his disciples to know that none of that means that his words are not true. None of that means that he has abandoned them or forgotten about them. None of that means that his promises are not true or that they can't be trusted. Their world may in fact become a terrifying place before their very eyes. And yet, none of that is going to stop Jesus from accomplishing his purposes. And one day, returning to make all things new. And in those ways, at least, I think Jesus' words in this passage today cut their way straight through history directly to us. Because our world can also be a terrifying place, just like theirs was. A broken place. We regularly witness its brokenness on a grand scale. Almost every time that we unlock our phones and read about tragedy after tragedy after tragedy occurring in our world, most of us also experience the world's brokenness on a personal level, the brokenness in our family and our friends and our relationships and the lives of our coworkers. We experience brokenness in our own hearts and our own minds. All of those are realities for us, just like they were realities for the disciples back then. And just like them, we might be tempted to witness all of that day after day in our world and draw the conclusion 
that Jesus either already has come back and now he's just left us to fend for ourselves, or just that this whole thing is a sham anyway and we should stop acting like there's some grand light at the end of the tunnel. There are plenty of voices out there that will tempt you and encourage you to draw those types of conclusions from our world. But in the midst of it all, I think Jesus speaks to his disciples and speaks directly to us. He says this, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Do not lose heart. Do not give up. Mourn and grieve the brokenness of our world, sure, but do not despair. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Mark my words, City Church. Jesus will return. And when he returns, we will know. On that day, he will set every single thing right that has gone wrong on this earth. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will no longer be any such thing as pain, suffering, death, or tragedy for those that know and love and follow Jesus. That day is coming, Jesus says. Those words can be trusted. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. So in the meantime, we as followers of Jesus, we wait. Now, we don't just wait. We don't just sit on our hands. There are things for us to do in the meantime. We're going to talk about all of that the next few weeks as we cover the rest of these chapters. But we wait with confidence that Jesus has not forgotten us, and he never will. He will make all things new. And we can know all of that because even on the day when things looked the darkest for Jesus himself, he was actually accomplishing the most. He was demonstrating for us that his words can in fact be trusted even when things around us are at their absolute worst. So each Sunday as a community of followers of Jesus here at City Church, we go to the tables together and we remember that day that Jesus accomplished that for us. The day where it looked like on the surface darkness and suffering and tragedy and death had won, but turns out it hadn't, not by a long shot. And as we go to the tables together each and every week, we remember all of that. We remember what Jesus was accomplishing through all of that. We celebrate those realities together and we look forward to the day that he makes all things new. As Jesus sat with his disciples partaking of this very meal, what we often call the Last Supper, he said to them, I will not take of this bread and this cup again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. What he means there is the day that he makes all things new. So until then, we celebrate that day and we look forward to the day that we celebrate it with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth when he makes all things new. Amen? Let's pray.